I would just say that blackmail, or to use the more polite Western term, quid pro quo, has been a constant way of engaging in diplomacy and trying to advance your interests or protect them. It is the week of November 1st, and welcome to episode 104 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have Carmen Medina, NSI advisory board member and former deputy director of intelligence at the Central Intelligence Agency, Rob Walker, NSI visiting fellow and executive director of the Homeland Security Experts Group, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, we are discussing the military coup in Sudan, where that country's transitional government uh, has stopped dead in its tracks and what that means for U.S. national interests in the region. We will also discuss uh, cyber attacks originating from the Russian government through the organization known as Nobelium and how the U.S. government has responded and what this means for other areas of our national security. Last week, a coup in Sudan added even more chaos to the Horn of Africa. The Sudanese military put the civilian prime minister under house arrest, and the transition to civilian rule in that country, already very slow, is now appears to be dead in its tracks. Rob, there's a, a significant recent history with Sudan and our war on terrorism. Osama bin Laden, of course, used to live in Sudan. Sudan was behind the bombings of our embassies in East Africa in the late 1990s. This uh, recent thaw in relations between the U.S. and Sudan, and also notably Sudan and Israel, was seen as one of the diplomatic achievements of the Trump administration. So what, is, what does this coup mean for U.S. national interests? First, I just want to say, um, you know, it's saddened to see that uh, another military coup has taken place this year. Uh, we've seen others, Myanmar, well, that was a year, over a year ago, but still. Uh, it's sad to see, you know, democratic countries uh, reverting back to military rule uh, it's even sadder to see that uh, there's a, reports of at least three dead uh, out of uh, protests and military response to those protests and just hope that they continue to allow the people to gather peacefully and speak their mind and ultimately uh, return to a democratic form of government. Uh, I'd like, you know, Sudan, as Lester noted, you know, it has been a, a key harbinger of what goes on in the region. And, and it's uh, so far, the junta or the military leaders have not shown that they're going to withdraw any of those agreements or that they're rolling back uh, any of the progress made in terms of uh, international relations. And we hope that that continues. Uh, and hopefully that we're still seeing U.S. presence on the ground uh, and working against terrorist organizations uh, that are throughout that region of the world. Um, but we have not yet seen where they where this military government wants to go. They're leaving the cabinet in place at this point. So far, it's only the PM that they've, you know, placed under house arrest and deposed. So I think we have to wait a little bit longer and be have a little more strategic patience and see how they want to respond to this. Um, obviously, we, we have, de we have uh, declared it a state of emergency and, you know, the We've done all the right diplomatic language uh, coming out of the State Department and the president's office uh, as to, you know, saying that we want democratic rule to be reestablished. And, and I fully support that. Um, but as, as a call to action for the U.S. at this point, I think we need to wait it out just a little bit longer and see which way they go. Armin, uh, the Russians and the Chinese have been playing a role in Sudan, of course. Russia signed an agreement for a naval base in the Red Sea just off the Sudanese coast. Uh, China has included Sudan in its Belt and Road Initiative, which uh, is probably bad news in the long run for Sudan's economy. What is it that's drawing all of these global players to Sudan? Um, I'll start with China. 
Athena, because I think that one is more understandable and, and straightforward right out of the uh, Great Power Conflict Handbook. I think it's page 47. Uh, but it's, you know, it's pretty, you know, if you look at demographics, which is destiny, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and in fact, most of the African continent, but particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, is uh, the only part of the world that in about 30 years or so will have any population growth, which means it's the only part of the world that, that will have booming markets. Uh, and so Sudan goes back and forth between being considered North Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa, right? But it's definitely, although their population gains are modest, it's part of uh, an over all effort in the Horn of Africa, where the population gain is going to be significant. So that's one. It's about trade and markets. Two, it's about getting votes at the UN, you know, and the more countries, the sub-Saharan African countries are a significant block that are going to be willing to say yes to something that China wants, the better. So that's a reason why China has cultivated uh, Sudan and many other sub-Saharan African countries. And, you know, some people argue that they're engaging in depth trap diplomacy, where they uh, support a project, they give the government a loan on favorable or unfavorable terms. And then the next time there's a major vote in the UN or some major issue, they bring the chips back in. And some people argue that it's more complicated than that. I would just say that blackmail, or to use the more polite Western term, quid pro quo, has been a constant way of engaging in diplomacy and trying to advance your interests or protect them. Russia is is more problematic. I sometimes I think about Russia, if you think about the US and how the Navy is lobbying for what its equities are and different parts of the bureaucracy are lobbying for their equities. I can imagine that there are Russian uh, naval interest groups, lobbyists, theorists who are just, you know, in love with the idea of Russia having a blue water Navy and, and will press them to do things which may not make a lot of sense, just because in principle, we got to have a big Navy. Uh, although the Red Sea, as we recall from when that container ship got so charmingly stuck in the Suez Canal uh, can have uh, significant ramifications for world trade. And it's probably handy to have a port or, or of call somewhere in the Red Sea. But ultimately, I think, uh, and this is my last comment, you can think about Russia as playing kind of the trickster role in uh, world international relations. The trickster, a figure in literature who's always just causing problems for as many people as they can without any clear goals for themselves. For the Gen Z folks, that would be the character of Loki in the Avengers, uh, the trickster. So Jamil, let's let's talk about the region right next door to Sudan in Ethiopia. There's a terrible civil war raging between the government and the Tigrayans that may be metastasizing into other conflicts. Uh, there's tension between Ethiopia and Egypt over this Renaissance dam in Ethiopia that is blocking the headwaters of the Nile. Egypt's very upset about that. Uh, Eritrea, formerly part of Ethiopia, continues to play the bad guy in any number of conflicts in the area, kind of stoking uh, armed responses to various things. Given given how things could go from, from bad to worse in this region, and we've seen a history of famine and kind of bad, very bad impacts for uh, humanity and livelihood, a lot of lives lost that didn't have to be lost. How active should the United States be in dealing with the coup in Sudan and these other conflicts in the region? Yeah, you know, look, Les, I mean, I think, I think we have to recognize that um, we do have vital interests in, in Africa and in that region of the world. 
Um, I think too often we get caught up in this idea that the only places we have uh, interests are, are sort of Asia with respect to China and the larger conflict there, uh, Eastern Europe uh, and, and the conflict with or the potential conflict, the historic conflict with Russia during the Cold War, and then the Middle East where the threat of terrorism arises, right? Uh, people forget, as you point out, uh, some, of the, some of these terrorist threats have arisen out of the region. Uh, you talked about Sudan being a home for uh, Osama bin Laden before he moved to Afghanistan, uh, where the embassy bombings uh, against our embassies in Nairobi and, uh, and Dar es Salaam were planned. Um, and then Ethiopia, obviously a huge strategic player in the region, the Chinese recognize the importance and the value of Africa, um, uh, both in terms of its strategic position um, and the importance of being a player there. Um, and I think for too long, uh, the United States has uh, sort of given Africa the short end of the stick. Um, and uh, and going back to our our our, our horrific history uh, uh, with bringing slaves from the African continent uh, to this country. Um, but but it is a strategic matter. We have never given it the, the strategic importance or assigned it the strategic importance uh, it deserves. We did create Africa Command, um, although there have been you know, repeated conversations about whether to, whether to undo the creation of that, uh, that, that entity within the Department of Defense. Um, and so while we've paid it some lip service, I don't think we've really taken account of it. And I think that uh, it's important for the U.S. to be engaged uh, in uh, the the conflict in Sudan and 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 addressing it. At, at a minimum, we've pulled out our our aid, and obviously the humanitarian situation there. Uh, that aid is critical uh, to helping the people of Sudan. Um, and so, you know, I think this is going to be a very tough situation for the U.S. to navigate. Assume the coup coup government remains in place. How long are we going to keep that aid withheld? Um, from the people of Sudan who, who clearly need it. Um, and then Ethiopia, uh, to your point, um, you know, has long had these, these challenges, the, 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 the war from back in the day with Eritrea, uh, now sort of extending itself in a different form to the Tigrayan population, which has always been oppressed in uh, Ethiopia by the majority, uh, by the other populations, um, has been a challenge uh, for, for that country. And, and as you point out, the trickster in this is, is Eritrea, which likes nothing better than to, uh, than to sort of you know, stick, a, stick a needle in the eye of its, of its uh, neighboring uh, brother or sister country. Ethiopia. Harmon, Rob, I'm kind of interested in hearing from you also on this question of of where the conflicts in the Horn rank on the list of, of priorities for the U.S. You know, like this week, the president was in Rome for the G20. He's now in Glasgow for uh, these climate talks. Uh, there, There's going to be a summit with President Xi before the end of the year, perhaps virtual. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff on the smorgasbord of American foreign policy. Sudan, you know, I think it's important. I know Jamil thinks it's important, but it, let's face it, it's a relatively obscure issue in the constellation of national security concerns. How much time should we be spending on this? Obviously, during the height of the Cold War, Ethiopia and Somalia were really vibrant, intense conflict zones, not just between Russia and the U.S., but sort of as a triangular thing between Russia, the U.S., and China, as I, if I'm trying to recall my history. But I think that uh, we all had different favorites in these various conflicts. I mean, I, I think that clearly the problem of refugees and the uh, flows is one that will affect us when sometimes we're least expecting it. And, and we can't really afford to have that kind of instability. 
in, uh, in terms of human rights issues and the refugee problems that it creates. But I also think we have to think about Kenya. And Kenya is an incredibly important anchor state in sub-Saharan Africa. And they're doing fantastic things with a, a different economic model than the West, but nevertheless, they're making some kind of progress. And, and I, I think that um, we are ill-advised to ignore that part of the world. And in fact, we, we need to pay attention to it. The problem is it's, it's hard to know what to do, you know, in terms of, you know, our lessons in Afghanistan, just because we think it's important doesn't mean that we have any really good ideas or at least things that we can carry through. Rob, I, I, I want to hear from you, but I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm mindful of the fact that all too often the the problems we end up dealing with kind of on the main stage of our national security concerns seem to have originated in sub-Saharan Africa, right? Osama bin Laden uh, started in Sudan before he even went to Afghanistan. Uh, Al- Al-Qaeda struck at our embassies in East Africa well before 9-11, uh, a lot of the the lessons we've learned started in in East Africa or or similar places. What do you think? How much of an effort should we be making here? So if you if you continue that thread and then go a little bit further east, you can track you know the the rise of of Islamic extremism across the Sahel. You can get all the way out to Mauritania and all the way to the Western African coast and understand that you know these things are all linked. So. Sudan, if you will, is is the foothold. It's the landing point out of out of the Arabian Peninsula into uh, into the Greater Africa. So I, I'm with Carmen. We've we've got to expend time, energy, and resources in the region. I, I you know, Jamil brought up the the minor controversy of Africom. I'm all in. Africom has to ex, ex, you know has to stay. It needs more resources. You know, whatever we are pulling from. CENTCOM and, and the um, uh, the conflict in Afghanistan, we should be redistributing some of that across SOUTHCOM and AFRICOM uh, because those are the two geographical combatant commands that have traditionally been sort of afterthoughts. Uh, and, and there's a lot going on in the sub-Saharan region, uh, Central African region that most of the American public is just not aware of and just not keyed into. Um, you know, you can think a few years back uh, when we lost soldiers in Niger, uh, Think of a heroic raid by the French uh, in Algeria several years ago as well that, that you know, were, were impacts on the um, extremist and terrorist threat networks that come out of that region. But we've, we've got to continue to, to press forward uh, and not allow Sudan or Chad or Niger or any of those others to become what Afghanistan was pre-9-11. Uh, so I, I, I think, you know, there's, I, I, I've talked to officials at AFRICOM uh, high-ranking officials who unfortunately don't get onto the continent as much as they would like to. And that's, that's frustrating for them because, you know, they're, they're directing operations across a vast network and across a vast land area, uh, but don't often get to see the ground themselves. I just think that there's opportunity for us in our extending pivots out of Afghanistan towards Asia, Pacific, whatever, uh, to throw a little resource love towards AFRICOM uh, and, and USAID and other, you know, U.S. entities and interests in that space uh, to counter the Chinese influence in that area and, and indeed, you know, continue to fight terrorist organizations that have enjoyed some freedom of maneuver uh, on that northern part of the continent. Armin. I just wanted to bring up climate change and the correlation between countries with a lot of instability and countries that have always drawn the short straw in terms of climate and geographic location 
and, uh, and, and political instability. And that's certainly the case in Sudan. It's certainly the case in the Horn of Africa. It's, it's across that whole Sahel region. And we, you know, there's obviously nothing we can do on climate change that's going to affect political stability in the next two to three decades. But we have to understand, and if I were, uh, you know, if I had a, a small analytic staff, I'd be, you know, trying to crunch the numbers and trying to get some, figure out what kind of correlation there is between all these recent coups and uh, issues of just, you know, physical decline in a country's economy because of climate change. Emil, what, what, what do you think of that? And then, and then talk to us about uh, the Abraham Accords. Sudan was one of the, the Arab countries that reached kind of a, a diplomatic rapprochement with the state of Israel. No one really saw this coming uh, during the Trump administration, but that, that deal between Khartoum and Jerusalem, not insignificant in, uh, for, for other U.S. equities and, and the, the equities of humanity, I would say. So like, how, how does that factor in, plus what Carmen was talking about, how perhaps some of this instability we're seeing is, is related to these larger global trends? Yeah, no, look, I, I haven't done enough studying of, of, of the trends that Carmen's talking about to, see, to understand whether there's a direct correlation. But, but her theory, her, her argument seems right to me, right? And it seems well supported. Um, um, I can't say for, say for sure myself. Uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, this larger question of, um, of Sudan's, you know, relationship with other nations, the point you raised about the, about the Abraham Accords, I think is an important one. Um, I, I think that every time you see uh, the U.S. able to take a leadership role and bring allies or, you know, former adversaries um, into, the, into the sort of the conversation and, and play a productive role, I think there's value there. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about um, you know, I tend to be a person who favors the use of American hard power, uh, but this is a good example where American soft power has had some salutary effect. Of course, now some of that may have gone and, and gone to waste given the given the coup situation. Um, but I do I do think that engaging in that type of activity um, and creating those type of relationships and 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 re-energizing um, opportunities for economic development in Sudan, in Israel. Uh, you've seen already a, a burgeoning trade amongst the Abraham Accord countries. I don't know that it's necessarily picked up between Sudan and Israel necessarily, but certainly the other Arab nations that signed uh, the Abraham Accords, you've seen a, you know, a series of economic visits already taking place. So there are real, I think, unique opportunities that come out of that. Um, and the U.S. can play a leadership role in that. I think that, and I think that's an appropriate use of the diplomatic tool of, of statecraft. I think where uh, we oftentimes, though, I think, you know, fall over as a nation or have at least in the last decade and a half is our unwillingness to reach for other tools of statecraft, other tools of nation state power. And the fact is that our allies and our adversaries know that we're unwilling to do that. And given that unwillingness are inclined to press us. And that's why you see what you saw in Crimea. It's why you see China doing what did in South China Sea. It's why you see the activities against Taiwan. And now it's great that Tony Blinken in Rome over the weekend uh, told the Chinese that we're going to we're going to defend Taiwan um, and, and the like. Uh, we'll see what the Chinese really believe, right? And whether whether we're actually stand behind those words, it's one thing to say them, uh, but we've seen the U.S. oftentimes establish these red lines. We saw what what President Biden said to Vladimir Putin about cyber attacks and said that he's going to put these things off off limits. And now that we've seen those lines crossed. 
will we do something about it? And that's, I think, the, the open question that remains. What, a, what an excellent segue into our next topic, which is the uh, recent hacking from the Russian government against U.S. companies. Uh, this organization, Nobelium, uh, which was responsible for the infamous solar winds attack a few months ago, it appears they are back at it, hacking into American cloud companies. Jamil, President Biden took steps the last time this happened. Uh, he said um, that Vladimir Putin was banned from attacking certain segments of the American economy through through these uh, cyber methods. Is that working? Well, I mean, I, as they say in sports, scoreboard, right? I mean, it, uh, it does appear to be working. Um, it uh, uh, Look, I, I think the President Biden was talking about a broader set of things than just uh, the solar winds hack. Uh, he was talking about, you know, uh, some of the more uh, problematic ransomware activities that have taken place that are more what I would call cyber attacks versus cyber hacks, right? So hacks, in my view, are things where uh, there's information stolen um, and data extracted and the like. Um, uh, it's like the stuff we've seen by the Chinese, the extensive hacking campaign the Chinese have gone on against Amer- the American private sector to extract, you know, billions of dollars a year, trillions of dollars writ large of intellectual property. Um, and the Russians, we've seen doing some of this also. Um, and, and in this case, uh, what it appears to be is this appears to be hacking. They're going up against uh, American private sector companies, uh, American, American think tanks, academic institutions to steal data. We don't see any evidence, at least in this instance in Nobelium, uh, of them actually engaging in attack-like activities. And I would describe that as activities where there's destruction or data manipulation um, or, or, or the bricking of computer systems or like. We have seen that, by the way. We've seen the, the Iranians, we've seen the North Koreans do it. We know the Russians and Chinese have the capability. Um, and so we don't see that happening here. And so the question becomes, you know, what what should the response be, right? And and the the, the president, when he was confronted with both the ransomware series of attacks that have been attacks uh, by Russian or actors in Russia, right? You know, entities, criminal organizations that operate with the tacit acknowledgement of Putin. Um, we saw the president say, look, these sectors are going to be off limits. You cannot go after them. Um, and I, I guess that quite raises the question, what about the other sectors? Can you go after them? Is that, is that cost-free, right? And then some costs will be, will be employed. Well, now we're seeing the Russians do some of this. They're not doing it through the, through the attack methodology that was most problematic before, uh, but they are engaging in this large-scale, what we call violation of cyber norms. And so now the question becomes, will the president deliver consequences? And that has always been the question, Right. We often hear three presidents in a row, President Obama, President Trump, and President uh, Biden all talk about, you know, consequences and talk about, you know, a time and place of our choosing. Well, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans have figured out what that means. It means we're not going to do anything. So until we start talking about time and place of our choosing and start doing something, they're going to continue to test our boundaries. We've got to be able to go offensive and do it in public where everyone can see it. It's like the kid on the playground, right? We all tell our kids, you know, don't go... Don't, you know, don't get in a fight in the playground, you get bullied, go tell the teacher, you know, tell the principal, and then we'll have a conversation. We all know, though, that's not really the most effective way. The most effective way is tell your kid, punch the kid on the playground in front of everybody else, you're going to stop getting bullied, right? We don't tell our kids that, but in the international arena, where there is no principal or no effective principal, it might be the right thing to do. Armin, do you, do you agree with Jamil's uh, uh, theory here that in that our apparent lack of responsiveness in the cyber realm kind of translates into the real world and where our credibility is in question kind of across the spectrum of cyber activities and real world uh, commitments? Um, Yeah, I would say I agree. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's, this is a tough one. I, I, I know that Jamil believes that 
governments and the U.S. government needs to exercise its power more often, but it's very difficult to sort out what will happen next. And we we really are unfortunately in this place where we don't know what Trojan horses and Easter eggs sit in our uh, digital infrastructure. We have no idea what it is. And we uh, launch some kind of a punitive cyber attack. Um, I believe that the Chinese and the Russians probably have already thought about this and have countermeasures in mind. Uh, I'm reminded, and I don't mean to trivialize this, but I will say that there, during the 19th century, there was a new technology that emerged and the criminal element, I don't think nation states ever got into this, but the criminal element got very busy figuring out how to take advantage of it. And that's, that was trains. So we had trains rumbling, particularly across the United States, carrying very valuable goods. And they started getting attacked by robbers who would grab the stuff and get away. And it took a while for the train companies to figure out how to stop it and to be willing to spend that money, which they didn't want to spend because it ate up their profit margins to stop it. So I, you know, perhaps naively, perhaps naively, I am hopeful that at some point there will be enough prevention and the cost of these cyber attacks at the point of attack will be so high that it will begin to ter- to, to deter people. Uh, I'm I, I think it's 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 quite an asymmetric conundrum that we find ourselves in. Rob, Rob, this begs the at least in my mind begs the question. You know, if if you if you to continue the train metaphor, it was the Pinkerton agency that started marketing. Uh, the counterforce against these uh, these train robbers, which of course were largely not completely but largely private sector solution to these attacks, should we be looking to the private sector to start answering these attacks on their own how much How much should these private companies uh, be relying on the u s government for a response to something that 's basically an attack on them and I think that 's part of the exemplar of what 's going on here is that, you know only Roughly 10% of the published attacks were successful in this past uh, tranche. So that's that's good news. The private sector has learned from solar winds and other uh, attacks on a large scale uh, that it needs to better protect itself and better prepare itself for nation state actors against them. It also highlights the fact that uh, this is not a private sector or, or public sector alone problem. This is indeed a partnership, a whole of nation issue that we all have to work together to address. That includes all of us, well, Jamil, notwithstanding who is a cybersecurity professional, the rest of us who aren't, you know, need to do all the things that, that are respo- uh, responsible actors on online. Two-factor authentication for all of our data, of our phones, you know, uh, we need to not write down our passwords in a notebook and, you know, make it our anniversary and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it takes all of us at, now, I think, Lester, what you're getting at is, should we now let the private sector loose to go back? Uh, hack back is, you know, the uh, one of the terms of art. Uh, I, I think you do what your shareholders will let you do, you know, and if you're if you're a big company and you can handle it and you can take that responsibility. I me personally, I say go for it. Uh, what I think is holding them back is the cyber norms conversations. Will the United States government be there to back them up? Uh, in the long run, 
uh, I'm, I'm with Carmen. We don't know what's deeply embedded in some of our some of our systems. Uh, if if a large corporation indeed hacks back, um, will one of our nation state adversaries just flip a switch and suddenly everything goes dark? You know, so there, there's a societal implication here too. There's a there's um, a lot of things we have to consider. But I, I would highlight again the fact that this is indeed a partnership, and the fact that we've seen. Just from when was SolarWinds? March, when it first uh, came to everyone's awareness. March to October. Wow, that, that's a great increase uh, in response, in coordination, in understanding. And the fact that only 10%, uh, roughly 10% of these intrusions were successful, uh, that's a huge step forward. And I hope it continues uh, as we move ahead. Congratulations to CISA, to uh, Cyber Command, to NSA to all those who work in collaboration with our private sector uh, to ensure that we as a society, as a nation, are more secure. Jamil, should we be giving more credit to the Biden administration for a robust response here across the board? Well, look, I think the Biden administration has done some good things. I think they've appointed the right people. You see General Paul Nakasone at Cyber Command um, and, uh, and NSA. You've got Ann Neubarger in the White House. You've got Chris Inglis as the National Cyber Director. Jen Easterly as the Director of CISA. I mean, these are all you know, I think anyone would say uh, they're cyber superstars. Um, I think one of the challenges, though, with the administration uh, has been, um, you know, uh, there's been a lot of conversation about the need to bring public and private together. And, and Rob described a few things that have happened. I think there's really great opportunities afoot. Jen initially just created uh, the um, the joint uh, uh, cyber security collaborative at DHS at CISA. I think there's a lot of really interesting um, opportunities taking place. Cyber Defense Collaborative, uh, JCDC. Um, I think one of the challenges, though, is uh, the administration continues to constrain both defensive and offensive activities uh, within the government to a very complicated uh, White House-driven, NSC-led process uh, that, in a lot of ways, the Trump administration had, had I think, uh, had, I think uh, limited some of the bureaucracy around. I think some of that's been reimposed. Um, and so uh, while that may make us more cautious in the cyber domain, and maybe that's there, to, at Carmen's point, maybe there's uh, reasons to be more cautious uh, because we don't know what's embedded in our systems. But I do worry about sort of this glass house theory, right? This worry that we are, we live in a glass house, we can't really respond effectively or rapidly or delegate that authority down to our components because, if we throw a rock, they might throw a bigger rock at us and we have more to lose. I think the problem is we're already losing, right? We, the, the, our, our opponents have been on the cyber offensive against us for years. We have not been pushing back effectively. And yes, while I agree with Carmen that it would be ideal if we impose the cost of the defensive side and made the, the, co- the barriers to entry so high, our adversaries would give up. The fact of the matter is that by leaving the private sector on the front lines of defending against this threat, We've created an almost intractable problem. You have private sector profit-making companies whose job it is to create products or services for consumers or other companies now on the front lines of cyber defense against nation states who have virtually unlimited funds, unlimited human resources to throw at the problem. They can't possibly keep up. Now, they can get a little bit better by working together across multiple companies, across multiple industries with the government. Yes, you can up the game. But at the end of the day, defense will only get you so far, as in football or any other sport, for that matter, the offense is always going to have the advantage in this case. And that's why the U.S. government has got to get more aggressive on the offensive side. It's got to engage in real deterrence. We know how to do this in every other domain of warfare, right? We just can't seem to pull it off over here. We can't talk about our capabilities. We don't talk about consequences. We don't talk about red lines. We don't actually impose consequences when red lines are crossed. Well, again, it's no surprise 
that our that our enemies like like children would are testing our boundaries. We don't we don't do a good job of setting clear boundaries and enforce them. And so, you know, I I, I agree. There's a lot more work to be done on the defensive side. Um, I think that I think that Rob is right that there have been significant improvements in what we're doing uh, in collaboration with the private sector. Could but does more need to be done? Absolutely, should it be done immediately. Yes, and should we free our operators to do more against the adversary and get more aggressive? One hundred percent. I think that's where I would put a lot of the emphasis for the next days, weeks, and months as we see more. If if in fact, as I predict, we'll see more of these coming along the down the pike. Carmen, do you want to close out this topic? Look like you might have something to say. I'm, I'm not sure if I have anything to add to this. I do think that it's useful to think about what kind of problems require government involvement at, at the national level. And this one, I think, hits all the buttons. It has to be done at scale. There's a compelling national interest. And the third, I would say, is that government has some capability to do it better. Well, that's always going to be questionable. But in this case, a lot of companies have been slow to do what needs to be done because of the profit motive. And companies, because of profit and competition against each other, have been reluctant to be open about some of these things and share lessons learned and you know problems that have occurred. So all of these reasons, I think, argue that there's a compelling national interest in making sure that everyone has the most recent information, understands the most recent vulnerabilities, and knows what the best defenses are. Let's move on to the final portion of the podcast, which is the issue that we're tracking that's not necessarily on the front page. I'm going to go first so you guys can have time to organize your thoughts. Mine are, I confess, both actually on the front page. One is, it looks like uh, talks with Iran will begin again towards the end of the month. Uh, Very notable. uh, And I would just make the quick point that many of the provisions of the Iran nuclear deal actually begin to expire in about three and a half years. So the utility of this thing is diminishes every day. Not sure it's worth trying to get back into the old deal. Uh, I was going to talk about that. I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to mention something that happened this morning, which was uh, the Chinese, rather than participating in person at the climate talks in Glasgow this week or participating virtually, decided to just send a written statement, which basically reiterates their position on climate issues over the years, which is that they're not going to do anything to reduce uh, their carbon production inside China for, uh, for decades and are targeting uh, 2060, which is a very far out date, uh, to go to uh, net zero carbon emissions. Uh, It's basically a giant screw you to the international community on climate concerns. And I hope the Biden administration exploits this for maximum diplomatic value because it is a real sign of how seriously China treats this issue that, that frankly, uh, billions of people care about. Okay, Uh, Rob, I will go to you next. Yeah, thanks, Les. Uh, I'm actually watching a nexus of things going on for those of us in the D.C. Beltway region, uh, we saw early or excuse me, late last week, a terror watch uh, advisory go out uh, specific to shopping malls in the area, Loudoun County, uh, Tyson's, etc. cetera. Uh, I understand there's an IS connection to that uh, through open source reporting. And so I'm watching that and dovetailing that with, of course, you know, tomorrow is uh, election day here in Virginia, uh, electing governor, uh, state legislature. Uh, regional uh, leaders, et cetera. So I'm, I'm wondering if perhaps there might be a nexus there. Uh, I'm not saying there is. I'm not saying there isn't. Uh, I'll just be watching that over the next few days uh, to to see, you know, if they are trying to stoke um, internal rivalries, internal uh, divisions, or if it truly is an international uh, influenced operation that uh, 
that uh, came down as a warning on Friday. Carmen. Thanks for bringing up China, because I will say, I was, and I will say something else that I, that I meant to say uh, at this point, but I will say that that's another odd piece of behavior on the part of China and the Xi regime. And there's been some headlines recently, how long it's been since Xi has actually left the country. So I continue, you know, it's another little mark that I put in the what's actually going on in China right now bucket. And I, uh, I, I seem to be accumulating more of those marks than, than, than normal. The thing that I was going to say, it's more a reflection than what story am I following. But I was thinking about the immigration into the U.S., this record immigration that we're getting from Central American countries. And of course, Central America is the part of the world where the U.S. and the CIA mucked around the most. You know, we were always launching little coups there and deciding who was the better potential leader. And so it got me to thinking whether or not there's actually a correlation between the uh, persistent, endemic political instability in Central America, except for Costa Rica, and the record of U.S. Uh, interference in that part of the world. So in the wake of the Afghanistan debacle, I wonder, you know, there are more lessons to be learned here than just what happened in Afghanistan. Jamil. You know, uh, Les, we've seen a couple of, uh, speaking of China, we've seen a couple of big announcements uh, in the last week on China and its military capabilities. We saw the revelation of two new variants of the J-20 stealth fighter. Uh, but more importantly, we saw the revelation that back in July, the Chinese had tested, uh, tested twice a uh, hypersonic missile capability. Hypersonic missiles um, are missiles that, like ICBMs, go into outer space, but then come down are much more maneuverable, travel at high rates of speed, are essentially ev- uh, capable of evading uh, even the best of U.S. Uh, U.S. the U.S.'s anemic uh, missile defense systems. Um, and so, um, obviously, two troubling, uh, uh, you know, sort of facts, all taking place in the context of a larger effort by China uh, to modernize and build out its nuclear weapons capability. We know that today the Russians have the most number of nuclear warheads. Uh, we are second uh, within a few thousand, within about a thousand of each other. Um, the Chinese are, are by far number three, but by far the, the, a huge amount smaller at about, you know, call it three, two, three hundred uh, nuclear warheads. But we see them right now building uh, nearly double the number of silos that we previously saw them have. Um, and so we know they're going to fill those silos with something. That's obviously a concern. So the Chinese are building out their nuclear capabilities. And then, of course, all of that takes place in the context of their aggressive activities with respect to Taiwan, 52 fighter aircraft in one day, fighters and bombers together uh, invading Taiwanese airspace. Uh, we've seen their behavior in the South China Sea and the building out of military tolls and like very troubling signs um, and things that, you know, we seem to keep, the U.S. seems to keep sort of reacting to, like, oh, oh, shocker, the Chinese have got this hypersonic capability. It was in 2018 that a Department of Defense official testified that the Chinese were testing 20 times more, te- conducting more, 20 times more tests of hypersonic ve- vehicles than we were. So it's no surprise this is happening, but we seem to wake up every so often and be like, oh, the Chinese are doing X, the Chinese are doing Y. We need to fundamentally reorient and get ahead of these problems and, and really start building out a, the, the military, the intelligence, and frankly, the industrial capacity uh, to fight China as a, as a real peer competitor. That means quantum, AI, uh, rare earths, semiconductors and the like. We are simply not paying close enough attention. We're spending a lot of time talking about $2.5 trillion of social spending, right? $1.2 trillion or $1.3 trillion in, in infrastructure spending. And very little time and effort is being focused on the real, large, strategic, long-term threat to America's economic, national security, health, and that's China. I wonder if we should start 
talking about the militarization and increasing isolation of, of China as Pyongyangization. Uh, maybe we could come up with that term. All right, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Riley Boyd and Bridget Neff Hickman for research assistance, and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for our conversation with Gina Bennett, one of the first intelligence analysts to warn about Osama bin Laden and who served as one of the longest serving intelligence analysts on Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups. 